This past week, we honored World AIDS Day, and this morning, I open our platform service with a poem by Marvin Solomon, titled AIDS. This poem was written in 1993. Finally, when there is nothing else to be done for them, they hold them in the hospice of their arms. Ignoring what the families condone, the nurses, friends, the other patients. Hearing squirrels scuttle across the bridge, shoulders of roof from front to back garden, listening to the strike of two clocks, the fridge murmuring the susurrus of the surreptitious isonine. Watching the ever-changing stained glass tints of morning, noon, evening, night, coloring their lives together, chiming with the clocks, shared minutes, nuances of evening, of meaning, timing attitudes of right and wrong, to eventual blurs of veiled and coded words, failed immunities, Viral abstracts of oriental rugs in rooms of memorabilia's objet d'art, uncloseted, unstored, finally revealing sinew, bone, and skin of love.
Good morning. Welcome to the Washington Ethical Society. My name is Tony Nam, and I'm so pleased you're able to join us this morning, whether you're in the room or joining us via live stream on Facebook. Visitors and guests, I hope you received a blue name tag so we know who you are and we can welcome you and answer any questions that you might have. We love talking about all the ways this community is so important to us, and we'd love to hear from you what you might be looking for. Please consider joining us for coffee and cookies out in the lobby and in the social hall after the platform service. You can also share your contact information with us. You can do that on the uh, gold Community Connect card that's in your program. You can add that to the collection basket later in the service so you could be added to our email list. I want to take a moment to remind you to silence your electronic devices so that you can be fully present with us this morning. But before you do, you can feel free to check in so you can let people know that where you are here at the Washington Ethical Society. And now I'd like to invite Pam Williams forward to read our statement of purpose so that we might hear our values and each other's voices, along with the many things that Pam has done for our community and continues to do. She is also part of our decorations committee for our upcoming winter festival, which is happening in a couple weeks. I'm sure we'll be hearing about ways that people can step up to Oh, one week? Man, this month is flying by. In one week, I'm sure we'll be hearing about ways that we can help decorate the halls and prepare for our celebration. That affirms the worth of every person. We strive through our relationships to elicit the best in the human spirit. With faith in human goodness, we appreciate each person's unique capacities. We joyfully celebrate together and support each other through life. We nurture a sense of reverence and responsibility for each other and the earth. We invite you to join our community of children and adults as we work for a world where love and justice cross all borders. Thank you, Pam. Please join me in the words to our candle lighting. May we kindle within us the warmth of compassion, the light of understanding, and the fire of commitment to build a brighter future for all. I want to welcome those who are just joining us in our hall. If you have an empty seat near you, uh, please, you can raise your hand to let them know. We ring this bell this morning in solidarity with people around the world, especially all those who struggle to make ends meet, who may be feeling additional anxiety at this time of the year. As we listen to the chime, let us remember our connection to each other and the world around us. Let us hold in our hearts all that hurts in the world. And let us commit ourselves to all that calls for our work and our love.
I'd like to invite you now into a period of meditation. If you want to settle yourselves comfortably in your seats. And if you choose, you can close your eyes or let them softly focus on the spot in front of you. And just breathe. Easy, steady breath in and let it out. As you settle yourself into this space, any thoughts or concerns, worries that might be swirling around, just let them go for now. And bring your attention to your breath. And with each breath in, and as you let it out, notice if there's any tension you're holding in your body. know that you can let that go too.
Ah, hope. (laughs) Our theme for December seems so obvious, hope. Surely we all need that, all want that, all can feel the pull toward hope, whether we are able to hold it or not. Hope is, after all, central to so many religious traditions, particularly during the holidays that are being celebrated right now in several of them. The Hanukkah story with the hope, the unexpected light that comes day after day, bringing hope to a scrappy band of rebels. And the Christmas story which holds in it the idea of hope born in one person, hope for the whole entire world. Our own Winter Festival celebrates hope as well. The Winter Festival that is coming up next Sunday, a week from today, with uh, times at 11.30 and 4.30. Let's just all say that together. (laughs) With times at 11.30 and 4.30. Alert listeners will realize that that means that at 9.30, there is not a typical platform service. We will have a small group led by Zeb reflecting on the idea of hope. But our big winter festival, our annual celebration of the values of peace, love, joy, giving, and hope will be at 11.30 and 4.30. That's, you guys are so good. After those two at 11.30, we'll have cocoa, cookies, and crafts. And after the 4.30, we'll have cocoa, cookies, and caroling. And I hope you will join us for those. We celebrate hope at our winter festival in a number of different ways, but one of the ones that is most meaningful is our children's candle lighting If you have been to a winter festival before, you will recall the experience of children walking forward to light candles, symbols of the hope that we have for the future. Sometimes I feel as though one of my biggest jobs is to try to keep hope alive for people, that I'm literally paid to hold on to hope when you can't hold it yourself. And sometimes I say that to folks very particularly when people are going through a time in life that is so hard, when they feel as though they are in the midst of despair, I will say, I'll hold on to hope for you if you can't feel it right now. And when you're ready, I'll be here hanging on to it for you. I take that job seriously. I feel it is important, and yet hope can be such an ephemeral thing. Emily Dickinson famously called it the thing with feathers. And I imagine hope just flying away, you know, flitting off just as we think we've captured it. If you follow that metaphor, I suppose, you probably can't put hope into a cage. It won't stay that way. But that's often how it shows up for me, at least. Things go well, and I feel as though there's plenty of hope in the world, and then something goes badly in my own life or in the world around me, and suddenly I feel plunged into despair as though hope has gone, flying off. This week has felt that way for me. (laughs) 
perhaps for you as well, it has been a bit of a roller coaster nationally. Up one minute, down the next. In fact, the whole past year has felt like that. And I can see the effect on folks in the congregation. I can feel it myself too. Not just the challenge of the past year, but the roller coaster of it, you know? The policy that comes through that feels harmful to people that we love, neighbors that we care about, and then, and then beating back that policy, a, a judge overturning it, and, and suddenly it feels as though it might be all right again. Healthcare is threatened, and, and then it seems the threat is taken away over and over again, week by week and month by month. The roller coaster of hope and despair, hope, and worry that we find ourselves on. I feel sometimes as though I can literally watch it as it ripples through the people of this community. I know that I feel it myself, the anxiety that we are carrying, the exhaustion from that roller coaster. As I talked with people about the subject of this platform, uh, about our theme for the month, they said repeatedly, oh, yes, hope, that's so important. We need that. Yes, we have to have that. I hope that you'll give that to us. Oh, no pressure. Great. Yes, you will leave here fully hopeful about the state of the world. You won't, spoiler alert. So if we feel we need hope so much, how do we get it? Or perhaps the question is more, how do we get a kind of hope that feels real? Hope that is connected to the reality-seeing, truth-telling portion of our tradition. How do we keep hope, in other words, from being just naivete or undue optimism? I mentioned during our opening words that this past week we honored World AIDS Day. I was not active in the world of activism at the time when that disease felt completely hopeless. But I have heard the stories of that time. And the reality is that for the lives of so many, it was, and in parts of our world, still can be. That's the thing about hope. We cannot always reasonably hope for a good outcome. We were having a Facebook conversation on staff a while ago. We have a little uh, Facebook messenger And sometimes we're talking about the details of, you know, who is bringing the shaving cream for Sunday school. That was this morning's message. But sometimes we wax philosophical in that messenger. A couple of weeks ago, we had a conversation about how to respond when someone tells you that they are praying for someone in your life who is ill. Now, there's a whole conversation that can be had for many folks at West. Not all. Some folks at West use prayer as part of their lives. But for many folks at West, that's not a part of our own spiritual or ethical lives. And so there's a whole separate conversation about how to respond when someone says, I'm praying for you, and how to be both 
you know, grateful for their thoughts, but not get caught up in what it is that they might be trying to say there. But this particular conversation was a little more specific than that. We were talking about what to do when someone is very ill, dying. And another person says, well, I will be praying for a miracle. How do you respond in that time? What do you pray for? What do you wish for when someone is beyond reasonable hope? When I served as a hospital chaplain, one of the things that we were taught was how to craft our prayers, if the patient requested that we pray with them, how to craft our prayers to be appropriate to the reality of their situation how to listen for what they were asking and pray perhaps not for returned health, but for a deeper kind of wholeness, to pray for reconciliation with family, to pray for release from pain, to pray for acceptance. That part of our job as chaplains was to help people see when it was time to shift from hope to acceptance. That shift is not just applicable for those of us who are bodily sick. My own understanding of hope shifted about two years ago. I was at a conference in New York City with a couple of West staff and a couple of West uh, members of the congregation. And um, there was a sort of side event, not one of the big main speakers. So we were sort of shuttled off into a small social room area on folding chairs while they got the big sanctuary where the conference was mostly being held already for something else. And we were addressed by uh, Miguel de la la Torre, a professor of social ethics and Latinx studies at Iliff School of Theology. I remember sitting there knowing that the topic was hope and expecting to hear one thing and then having one of those perception-altering experiences. You know how that can be? There you are in the midst of a 20 or 30-minute talk thinking, oh, everything I thought was wrong. That's interesting. Okay. De La Torre is a Christian theologian, and he speaks out of that tradition, a tradition that is often associated with great hope, with hope for miraculous things, hope beyond hope, hope when all hope is lost. And that's what I expected him to say in his theology of hope. Here's what he wrote. To hope in English is to expect to await something good. In Spanish, the word esperanza is derived from the word esperar. To hope in Spanish, esperar means, according to the Velasquez Dictionary, to wait in apprehension of either good or evil. He goes on, the usage of the Spanish word connotes a darker, more complex meaning that implies fear of what is awaited. To wait doesn't always imply a happy ending especially if the waiting drags on for centuries, as in the case of Hebrew slaves in Egypt or Latino and Latina residing in the belly of the empire. 
I have no problem, he wrote, with a hope in God. I do, however, find it problematic to hope that all things will work out for the best. History and personal experience shows that it seldom does. De La Torre went on to talk about salvation history, the idea that um, history was working together for ultimate good, for final salvation. We think of that in more traditional Christian theology, that we go on and on until the reign of the kingdom of God, but it shows up in progressive theology and philosophy plenty. In fact, the Enlightenment wholeheartedly embraced the idea of onward and upward forever. That beautiful quote which I hold dear, the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends for justice, first uttered by Theodore Parker, Unitarian minister, and then quoted famously by the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King, and embroidered on a rug in the Obama Oval Office. De La Torre asks us to consider whether that idea is really true. He writes, if the past and present are any guides, the existing of such an arch is a faith statement assumed without proof. But hope, he goes on, as a statement of unfounded belief, serves an important middle-class purpose. All too often, hope becomes an excuse not to deal with the reality of injustice. For those struggling to survive, he writes, the truth remains that destitution and death await the disenfranchised. The reality of reading our daily newspapers is that for far too many who are on the margins of society, there is no hope. In a very real sense, waiting leads to nothingness. But we who are familiar with and or grew up in marginalization are used to this. What I took away from hearing De La Torre that evening at the conference almost two years ago was the idea that hope, this middle-class Protestant Enlightenment idea that all things will eventually work for good, ignored the present reality of so many people around us. He writes, all too often the advocacy of hope gets in the way of listening and learning from the oppressed. We try to paint a beautiful, hopeful picture on things when that simply doesn't reflect everyone's life, our own lives, perhaps. So where does that leave us? I'm not quite ready to say that there is no space for hope. But I find my understanding of hope shifted and informed by De La Torre's work. For me, it brings up the importance of lament. I was at a retreat of Unitarian Universalist ministers a couple of weeks ago. We spent three days together out in West Virginia hearing from the theologian Rebecca Parker, whom I know I've quoted here before. I'm quite fond of her work. Rebecca Parker was talking about hope and about lament, about being present to the brokenness around us. One of the services that we had as part of that retreat. It's a minister's retreat, so you know they have like a a worship service about every 10 minutes or so. 
you start with one, you end with one at the end of the day, then you go have social hour. At one of those, my colleague Roberta Finkelstein brought up the idea of hope and lament. She pointed out that the Psalms in the Hebrew Bible, which I I don't know how familiar you might be with the Psalms. Some of you probably learned them growing up or enjoy them now. Some of you may have no familiarity with them. But the, the Psalms are poems, really, songs and poems collected over many, many years. And the thing I love about the Psalms is that like any good book of poetry, they have all the emotions in there. Some of them are very unflattering about the authors because they were human, right? And our emotions are occasionally very unflattering. The Psalms start out at the beginning with lament, That's the part of the Bible where you hope your enemies' children's heads are crushed against a rock. I told you it was unflattering. (laughs) It goes through lament, anger, sadness, and then slowly moves on over the course of those long lists of poems into hope. Rebecca Parker said, Being present to what is right here and right now is important. To the beauty that is here and also the lamentation that is here. In the service that my colleague Roberta offered, she started out by inviting us to join in a little bit of lament. But she made it more accessible for us. You know, Unitarian Universalist ministers don't actually read the Psalms all that much. We studied them in seminary so that we can refer to them as I just did in front of you on Sunday morning. But in reality, they don't usually make up our lives. And so instead of asking us to uh, lament publicly, she invited us to whine. (laughs) We turned out to be great at that. (laughs) In fact, she asked us to whine in unison to simply take a moment to whine aloud. And so I'll invite you to do the same. There are more of you than there were of us at that gathering, and so I expect the whining to be louder. I invite you right now to whine, to lament about whatever it is that has you down, whether it is a great big state of the world or a little tiny annoyance that is stuck in your craw. Jim, you can whine as much as you would like. We're going to do it all at once. Are you ready? Whine. Okay, that was, they say, talk about a joyful noise that was a wineful noise. A theology, a philosophy of lament. Rebecca Parker went on to quote the late uh, Muslim theologian Ibrahim Abdurrahman Farajeje, who um, worked and wrote out of his position at Star King School for the ministry. 
She talked about his belief that we progressives have retained too strong a theology of hope, that onward and upward forever kind of thing. And in fact, that's been a real response of neoconservative theologians and philosophers to progressive ideology, that we do not have a sufficiently strong theology of evil. Parajaje used a different word, according to Parker, and I will apologize that Farajaje was not um, safe for work. Um, <laughs> he thought we needed a theology or an understanding of fucked upness, of the brokenness of ourselves and our world. A need to see and sit with and accept to be present to our own failures, the failures of society. And instead of running from them, instead of when we see that brokenness feeling as though we cannot be present lest we be rejected fully, that instead we accept ourselves and each other in the fullness of all that is broken. For me, that is the key, to be fully present to the lamentation, not to turn away from the brokenness in ourselves or in the world around us. In the community organizing world, we talk often about the world as it is and the world as it should be. My favorite illustration of that came a number of years ago from a rabbi friend of mine, uh, Jessica Oleon, who serves out in California now. At the time, she was in D.C., and she was speaking in a mosque, actually, where people from many different communities had gathered to talk about the kind of D.C. that we wanted to build together. She asked us to think about the world as it is and the world as it should be, using a metaphor of Jerusalem that is used in the Jewish tradition. The Jewish tradition tells us that we can see at the same time two Jerusalems, the one that is now in this real world, broken, incomplete, and the one that could be beautiful, just, she said, we are called, we who do community organizing work, we who try to make the world different, we who hope to have hope, are called to see them at the same time, to superimpose them on each other. You know, I imagine those clings that you can put on windows to decorate for the holidays, you know, right on top of each other so that you can see them both at once fully present to the brokenness and lamentation, fully present to the beauty that is possible. The Quaker writer Parker Palmer put it this way, optimism often means shutting one's eyes to hard realities and taking refuge in wishful thinking. Hope comes when your eyes are wide open to the brokenness in our world, but you're still able to see and actively build upon what Thomas Merton called the hidden wholeness that lies beneath 
the broken surface of things. The hidden wholeness. That's what we were helping patients to see in my hospital chaplaincy. That's what I look for when I try to see two Jerusalems at the same time. The poet Lucille Clifton wrote this. Won't you celebrate with me what I have shaped into a kind of life? I had no model. Born in Babylon, both non-white and woman, what did I see to be except myself? I made it up here on this bridge between starshine and clay. My one hand holding tight, my other hand. Come celebrate with me that every day something has tried to kill me and has failed. We know these people. We are these people. The people whom something has tried to kill every day and who have lived anyway, who have called for celebration anyway. I was reading a little more about the creation of the AIDS quilt by Cleve Jones. He was moved to begin work on that quilt in part because so many victims of AIDS had no funerals. The undertakers would not even touch the bodies to provide for them. Families perhaps had rejected them. This quilt was started a symbol of loss and lamentation, an awareness of the brokenness of the world, which became also a symbol of love and beauty and hope. A couple days ago, NPR shared a story core from Christopher Harris, a man who was diagnosed with AIDS uh, relatively early during the, during the crisis. He tells in StoryCorps about going to his doctor and saying, you know, I have a child, I just can't die right now. There were no medicines available at that time, and his doctor told him that there were some medications that he could get on the black market, but that he couldn't give it to him. Harris asked, well, could you give me a number? Can you tell me where I can find those medications? And the doctor said, no, I can't give you anything. By the way, you've dropped something. Harris said, what are you I haven't dropped anything. I'm sitting right here. No, you dropped something. The doctor had thrown a wadded up piece of paper with a phone number. Harris recorded that story core just recently. He ended up working with the Buyers Club uh, out of Atlanta, where he lived. This winter festival, as our children come forward with their candles of light, as they do every year, we are interspersing, thanks to Director Marty Kaufman's brilliance, we are interspersing the names of those who give us hope. Whether they are people in our own lives, Aunt Agnes, or great political justice figures. I want to invite you to email Marty or me, and I'll get it to Marty, 
with the names you want read out, called out during our celebration of hope here. My final poem, turns out there's a lot of beautiful writing about finding hope. I posted another I couldn't even fit in on my Facebook page this morning. But my final reading comes from the liberation theologian Ruben Alves. What is hope? It is a presentiment that imagination is more real and reality less real than it looks. It is a hunch that the overwhelming brutality of facts that oppress and repress is not the last word. It is a suspicion that reality is more complex than realism wants us to believe and that the frontiers of the possible are not determined by the limits of the actual and that in a miraculous and unexpected way, life is preparing the creative events which will open the way to freedom. The two, suffering and hope, live from each other. Suffering without hope produces resentment and despair. Hope without suffering creates illusions, naivete, and drunkenness. Let us plant dates, even though those who plant them will never eat them. We must live by the love of what we will never see. This is the secret discipline. It is a refusal to let the creative act be dissolved in immediate sense experience and a stubborn commitment to the future of our grandchildren. Such disciplined love is what has given prophets, revolutionaries, and saints the courage to die for the future they envisaged. They make their own bodies the seed of their highest May we too be the seed of our highest hope, a hope that is born not out of some pretend world where everything always works out for good, but from our real lived experience, from our knowledge of the world as it is, from our willingness to listen to the stories of others, to understand them as deeply as we possibly can, and to lead and be led in the work for change. May we find a space for this kind of hope in our hearts and in the world. survive in this world to
Now's the time in our platform service where we have an opportunity to share our own thoughts and reflections on anything that we've heard this morning. I'll give you a moment to collect your thoughts.